0: All right, good evening. Welcome to our Bible study on the life of Christ. And I had told you we were going to do all of the Sermon on the Mount in one night. And believe me, I made a valiant effort to make that happen. As I was studying for the text to keep, be prepared, I just realized uh, it would not be fair to you or to me or to the text to do it in one night. But I do believe that I can do at least one chapter per night. So we're going to get chapter 5 done tonight, Matthew chapter 5, and then um, as, as much as I think I'll try to get 6 and 7 done next Wednesday, I don't think it's going to happen. We'll probably have a three-part series of the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, there is just so much content, which, by the way, is not a bad thing. You know, when you consider, what is it that Christ wants for my life? Uh, if Christ was going to preach a message, if Christ was going to tell me something that I really needed to know, what would he tell me? Well, I don't know that he would tell you one thing. I I guess one thing he could tell you is love your neighbor. One thing he could tell you is uh, follow me. I mean, those are things that he would say, but if you really just want to see the heart of Christ, read the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We also find a portion of that sermon in Luke chapter 6, and it's really a condensed version, 17 through 49. So I guess If I wanted to preach it in one night, I could have just turned to Luke chapter 6 and not told you about Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But most of you are already fully aware of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So that would not have been an easy thing to do. So we are going to look at the fuller version of the Sermon on the Mount in the three chapters in Matthew. I'm not really even going to look in Luke. Uh, I could allude to it here and then. In fact, I know I will allude to it almost at the beginning of tonight's message, but probably not much more after that. So we're in Matthew chapter 5. Let's take a look at this Sermon on the Mount, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Now, when it says his disciples, that does not just limit the 12 apostles' disciples. It could have obviously include others who were following him. He refers to a group, it seems, of about 100 plus as his disciples, which seems to imply um, a commitment of, of folks who followed him throughout the three years of his ministry, just were not elevated by Christ to the position of apostle, of, of an extreme spiritual leader. And so he opens up his mouth, of course, and begins to teach, and we find the first uh, part of the Sermon on the Mount, which might be one of the most recognizable and famous portions of his sermon— and that is the Beatitudes. Excuse me, thank you. The Beatitudes. Now, the Beatitudes have an idea of, of uh, an elevated state of emotional being. That's actually what the Beatitudes word uh, means, Beatitude. It, it's, it's not so much attached to the, the idea of a being of attitude or a doing of attitude or an action attitude, although it Seems if you parse the word out, oh, yeah, you know, it's an action verb of attitudes. No, it actually means an elevated level of emotional stability, a high joy, you might say. And so these nine Beatitudes, now I put nine. Some, if you look at messages or read books or look at content online or blogs, you might find eight Beatitudes. The reason being, I think a lot of folks take the eighth and ninth, combine them into one, and just come up with eight. But I have a reason for having the Beatitudes stretched into nine of them, because we have nine blessings, and each blessing is attached with the reward. And and the eighth and ninth blessing and reward are not only separate blessings, but they are separate rewards. So I, I would not attach them, although there are some similarities between the two. We'll see those shortly. I believe they are separate. So let's look at the first one in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now that phrase, poor in spirit, could obviously be alluding to some idea of humility or meekness. And in fact, that's kind of what I would think and say, except for the fact that when you look uh, later on at the the, the blessings and you find uh, meekness is mentioned in verse 5, it doesn't make sense that God would repeat the same beatitude or the same blessing for both meekness and humility. Now, it still could be that one is meekness and one is humility, and although they are similar, they are separate, and that might be the case. But when you turn to the book of Luke, and you look at Luke chapter 6, verse 20, he says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then verse 21, blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. And although Luke is a kind of paraphrased, condensed version, it might be that Luke is giving us insight onto what this idea of poor in spirit means in this context. And again, it could be humility, and maybe I'm getting it wrong, and maybe there's a separate application here. But when I look at Luke, when I look at the context of Matthew, when I see that meekness is already mentioned, and although it could be humility, I think that what we're seeing here is is someone who is blessed for their poorness because of their spiritual state. Poorness because of the, 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 the life choices they have made. Not that they have chosen to be lazy and therefore poor, but they have chosen the high spiritual things of God. That their spiritual condition has resulted in financial struggles. Now, I'm not going to say that everyone who follows God will be poor. I'm not going to say that everyone who runs from God will be rich. But there are those, I do believe, that God has said, if you're going to follow me, this is what's going to be your, your financial condition. And, and, and they've accepted that. And that's what at least Luke, it seems to me, alludes to. And so in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, we find that those who are poor they are reminded of the kingdom of heaven, that they are given the kingdom of heaven, the, the, the rewards they will receive, the eternal condition of paradise, the eternal inheritance of walking on streets of gold and living in a mansion in God's home. Now, basically, God is saying, don't be overly concerned about the financial situation you find yourself in now on earth, because for eternity... Uh, money will be so prevalent, you're going to walk on it. You're going to walk on gold. The gates are going to be made from pearls. And, and these precious gems will be found everywhere in heaven. We find the second one in verse 4, Blessed are, ye, are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so those who find themselves in a state of sorrow, whether that's attached to a lost loved one, someone who has passed from this life into eternity, whether it's sorrow attached to a pain that has caused you or, or some other trial that you've gone through, regardless of the reason for the sorrow, we have a God that cares, cares enough to comfort. We are reminded of the comfort we find in God when we sorrow. Now, I want to tell you, comfort does not mean eliminating the sorrow. Just because we're going through a trial and we are suffering and struggling and sorrowing doesn't mean God's going to take the trial away from us. What it means is God will comfort us through the trial. We have a lost loved one and we're sorrowing doesn't mean God's going to bring them back on this earth alive (laughs) presently, but God will comfort us through that time of sorrow as we, we reconcile the fact that this loved one is no longer on earth with us. God cares. He cares enough to comfort. We find the third blessing in verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This idea of meekness is not uh, weakness. It's been said by many others over many years. Meekness is strength under control. Meekness does not mean that you're some cowering uh, weakling. It means that you don't allow your power to control your attitude. You don't allow your power to control your relationships. Like a a young child, elementary age child, who because he grew bigger than everyone else, because he or she is taller and stronger than everyone else, they exert their strength and size because they can. (laughs) Meekness doesn't mean they shrink. Meekness doesn't mean they, they lose height. Meekness means... They don't allow their strength and their height and their, their uh, growth above other classmates to affect how they treat people. Christ, we're told, is meek. We're told of Noah, I'm sorry, of Moses, excuse me, the Old Testament being meek. Moses had the most political power up to that point the nation of Israel had ever seen, at least as a nation in themselves. Moses could have condemned any of them to death. And yet Moses chose to be meek and not exert his authority over the Jews unnecessarily. Christ chose to not exert his, his heavenly power. God himself chose not to strike with lightning every, down every time someone called him out or every time someone uh, condemned him with a lie, every time someone angrily, falsely accused him. In his meekness, he did not use his power to overwhelm everyone. It didn't mean Christ was weak, and it didn't mean Moses was weak. But those who choose to be meek and to treat others with kindness, respect, compassion, regardless of their size, regardless of their age, regardless of their power, regardless of their authority, they choose to contain it and not overwhelm people with it. God says, you'll inherit the earth. That idea of inheriting the earth, there's different thoughts on what that can mean. Some who believe it means you'll inherit the new heaven and the new earth, when God, when Christ returns, reigns a thousand years, destroys it all and starts over, we'll get to inherit that with him. Uh, Attached, you might say, to the Old Testament covenants. There are some who think it means that we'll get to inherit the blessings of this life now. Personally, I believe it's a little bit of both. I believe that when it talks about inheriting the earth, it means just that, that, that God has something for us on this earth he wants us to enjoy not just then when he comes back and we reign with him for a thousand years, not just then when he starts over with the new heaven and new earth. I believe it includes now and then that we will enjoy the blessings God intends when we do not let pride destroy us and others because essentially pride is the opposite of meekness. Pride is thinking because you have a position of authority, you can belittle people. Because you are bigger, You can take from them. You can abuse them emotionally or physically. And so we're told about the many dangers of pride throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testament, and how pride eliminates the blessings of God. Whereas meekness, when we eliminate pride and embrace meekness, we get to enjoy the rewards and blessings of this life how many of those earthly blessings, how often, which ones, that's all up to God. I'm not going to tell you that if you're meek, you'll be the richest, happiest person in this life. But I am telling you, if you're meek, you'll be able to enjoy the blessings God intends for you to have now, not just in eternity. Okay, verse 6, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. That That word righteousness obviously includes a a level of holiness, a level of purity where there is no active sin controlling your life. The word righteousness, as it's in this text, does not mean perfection. There are times where it does when it's attached to God. But here, obviously, none of us will attain perfection. But we can attain a, a place, a spiritual place, where we are not actively controlled by sin. That if there is sin in our life, when we do sin, we give it to God, we repent, we move on. It doesn't have a hold on us. Essentially, sin can't blackmail you because you've already let it go. It has no hold on you. It can't blackmail you between you and God because you've already given it to God. And so those who seek that spiritual level, that spiritual condition of no sinful walls between you and God, God says, you'll find it. It's not hard to discover. God's not going to make it difficult for you to attain this level of spiritual righteousness. The only effort, the only action you have to take is repentance. Verse number seven, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I've said many times I believe that one reason God is so merciful to me is because I have taken that verse to heart, and I have made it a very... um, large part of my ministry philosophy, to not hold a grudge against anyone, to be merciful to families, parents, students, children, adults, church, school, to be merciful to my family, to be merciful to my church family. And I have discovered in my own personal life how true verse seven is, that there is much worse I deserve that God has not given me. And yet God gives me mercy instead. And I believe it's because I have been merciful to others. And that that is a promise from God. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those who attain a a just lifestyle, you know, kind of closely related to righteousness, but this idea of pure in heart, those who, who are seeking the truth, following the truth, not embracing deception not following lies, but those whose hearts know and follow truth, they will also know and see God. Well, that makes sense. Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if you are seeking truth, you are seeking God. And when you find truth, real truth, not not subjective personal truth, not my truth, when you find God's truth, you find at least some revelation of God. And the more truth you have, the fuller that revelation of God becomes. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Those who seek peace will gain the blessing of being called the disciples and followers of God. Not just known by God to be his followers, but known by others to be a follower of God. People will not know you're a follower of God because of the version of the Bible you have, because of the type of clothes you wear, because of the hairstyle you have, or the the lack of tattoos on your body. That is not how they're going to know you're a follower of God. There are only so many instances where God clarifies. People will know you're my follower. Here he says, if you're a peacemaker. Another location he says, if you love. That's how people will know you are a follower of God. And righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you notice verse 3, we also find the kingdom of heaven is attached as a blessing. So it's given twice. Verse 3, it's attached to those who are poor. You might be on the side that thinks poor in spirit. You might agree with me tonight and think it's attached to being poor in this life because of your spiritual condition. Either way, the blessing is the kingdom of God, eternal inheritance. And we're reminded again of that blessing attached to persecution. Persecution. And I think that that makes sense to me. Essentially, verse 3, you are giving up up your pride or you're giving up your finances, one or the other, for God. And God says, I have better for you in eternity. And in verse 10, you're giving up your physical health, persecution, for God. And God says, I have better for you in eternity. You know, verse 3, we're reminded of the kingdom of heaven in the light of, of financial blessing. In verse 10, we're reminded of the kingdom of heaven in the light of physical blessing, a body that will never die, a body that cannot experience pain, a body that will not get older. And so in verse 3, we remind, no matter how much money you give up for God now, you're going to be, you know, rolling in dough in heaven. It won't even matter because there's so much wealth in heaven that it's basically non-existent to be wealthy. (laughs) And in verse 10, we're reminded that no matter what you suffer physically on behalf of God's kingdom now, there is no suffering physically in heaven for eternity. And in verse 11, this is where I said that 10 and 11, it seems some attach the two, the 8th and ninth blessings, because verse 11 says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you, and again, persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you. Now, I recognize persecute, is in both 10 and 11, but verse 11 kind of fleshes it out and adds more to it. It states revile, and it goes after persecution to say, and says all manner of evil. I think that verse 11, the persecution in verse 11 is attached to reviling, attached to uh, 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 verbal attacks, whereas verse 10, persecution is attached to physical attacks. Now, I'd rather take the verbal attack any day of the month. I mean, my personality, verbal attacks don't really do much to harm me. Uh, Maybe you might disagree. The way that someone's words could affect you might be different than me, but I'd rather go through hearing someone say something and I can walk away from than feeling pain personally, but neither one is enjoyable. The reason I separate them, though, is because verse 11 gives us a different reward. Look at verse 12, where the reward is given. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So God is speaking specifically, not about kingdom of heaven in general, but specific rewards for those who are reviled, rejected, who are verbally attacked, and still withstand. And still move forward and still stay committed to God, we are told there are rewards waiting in you for that persecution and your faithfulness through it. All right, let's move on now. Got a lot to cover on the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, you recognize the famous passage in 13 and 14 might be the second most famous passage, Beatitudes, I think, being the first, and then these being the second. And then the passage on divorce might be the third, and then the passage on the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth might be the fourth, although I think a lot of people misunderstand that passage, don't truly comprehend what God is saying. But let's take a look at verses 13, 14, 15, and 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost the Savior, wherewith shall it be salted? Verse 14, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. For 15, neither did men light a candle and put it under a bushel. Verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, salt in the first century was not used so much for flavor as it was used for storage conditions. Salt was rubbed into meat to allow it to last longer. And so although I've heard messages preached how we need to cause the gospel to taste good to people, like, you know, salt flavors food. Well, that's not really a great application because not everyone likes salt on their food. And so if we take the Bible out of context and try to apply it in a way it's not intended, you can almost do more damage. But when it comes down to a culture and a time where refrigeration was not available, yes, they could put things in cellars and they could keep them cool in other ways. Common man could not keep their food cool as easily as us and so salt was a common commodity that people actually would use to buy things with that's how valuable it was and they would take the salt and rub it into their meat and their meat would last longer and so we like the salt are to be able to hold back corruption because that's what salt did it would hold back the the rotten and the corruption of the meat so the meat could go longer before it was unusable we as Christians are not to just stand back and let the world kill itself. It's like a parent who has children who are attacking each other in the living room. And the parent says, I'm done. And walks out and says, may the best man win. Or woman, let me know who survives. That's not good parenting. Now, a parent can separate the children and discipline the children. And someone could say, yeah, but they're just going to fight again later. But the parent can say, I understand that. And I'll be there again later when they fight next time. I'm not going to give them over to their destructive behavior. I recognize that correcting them today doesn't make them perfect children. I realize that redirecting them today doesn't mean I won't have to do it tomorrow. But that's my job. I signed up for that. So tomorrow, I'll still be here to redirect them. Next week, I'll still be here to correct them. So this family doesn't eat itself alive. And yet, so many Christians and so many churches walk out of the room and say, may the best man win, let me know who survives. Because what's the point? If we speak truth today, you'll just run tomorrow. If we correct you today, you'll just thumb your noses at us next week. Sure, but let's be there tomorrow, and let's be there next week. Well, we all know where it's going eventually. We know that in the end, man is going to reject God eventually. Yeah, but that doesn't have to be today. It doesn't have to be tomorrow. Well, we all know that someday God's going to destroy the world and start back over anyways. Yeah, but it doesn't have to be today. Well, why not? What's the point? Why doesn't he come back today? Because the longer he waits, the more people can be saved. And the more we correct and the more we, direct, we, we, we redirect in loving and love and truth, the more people have an opportunity to hear truth in love and to be saved. We're the salt of the earth. Let's do our job. Stop running. Start standing. Start speaking truth. Then he goes on to say City on a hill cannot be hid. We're the light of the earth. Don't hide your candle in a bush. There are those who are looking for a way out of the darkness. And they go to Barnes & Noble's and find self-help books, hoping that this book will give them the answer to all their problems. And they go to groups, church-related or not, where they sit around and talk about their problems and introduce themselves and hear the problems of others and hope that in some way they will find comfort knowing other people are also in pain. And they try certain medicines, and they try certain foods, and they try certain workout problems, and they try drugs, and they try alcohol, and they try sex. They'll do anything and everything to escape the darkness. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying small groups and talking to others is wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying medicines in, done within reason and balance. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that that, uh, uh, finding peace with friendships and connection with people, that's nothing wrong with that. But all of those things, at best, only mask the symptoms. (laughs) Those things don't actually bring you out of the darkness because no friendship, no matter how deep and how great, cannot bring you out of the darkness. I'm not saying emotional darkness here because I do believe friendships can bring you out of emotional darkness. I'm talking about spiritual darkness. The problem is a lot of people don't realize that's what they're confronted with. They don't know that. They think it's just an emotional thing. Well, the reason you're in emotionally dark places is attached to your spiritual darkness. And if your spiritual condition can find light... You are setting yourself up. I'm not saying that it's guaranteed that as soon as you get saved, all your emotions melt away and you're happy all the time. I'm not saying that. I am saying that when you find spiritual light, when you come to darkness, you are setting yourself up for success in all other areas of your life. The greatest response to mental health is spiritual health. Not the only response. I believe there are other practical steps that God has in his word to address mental health. But those other practical steps only assist slightly when you don't take the greatest step of spiritual health. Connection with God through salvation, and if you are saved, reconnection with God. And when you reconnect with God, now taking those other practical steps will do so much more for your mental health than they did before. But people are looking for ways out of the darkness. And why aren't they looking for Christians? Why aren't they looking for churches? Could it be that we're not the salt? And so when they're looking for the light, if we're not the salt, why would they think we're the light? Christ calls us both, not just one or the other. Because when you are the salt, when you stand on truth, speak truth, and live truth, When people are looking for the light, chances are they'll come to you. And when they find you, your goal is not to bring glory to yourself, but verse number 16, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That when they come out of spiritual darkness, they won't praise you, they'll praise God. That's the goal. It saddens me to see Christians leading people to the Lord and in some way, in their own minds, justify glorifying themselves because they were used to lead someone to the Lord. How dare you glorify God? It was his victory, not yours. The salt and the light. Let's go now to the next section of the law fulfilled. And so we see here in verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass one jot or tittle, shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men also, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great. Verse 20, for I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. I love that last verse in this particular part of the message because the first part could lead to some confusion. The first part, Christ says, I'm the fulfillment of the law. No confusion there. He's basically saying, I was prophesied and I'm fulfilling the prophecies, the messianic prophecies of Christ, of the Messiah. I'm the guy. It's me. I'm fulfilling those prophecies. That's clear. But as you read on, you read the second part, verse 19, where it says, uh, Break one of these least commandments and shall teach men he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. It seems to be a lot of emphasis is put on following the Old Testament law. And if, if it ended there, you could walk away thinking, man, I, if I don't follow the law, I'm least in the kingdom of heaven. Essentially, am I even saved if I don't follow the law, even the least of the law, which implies if you follow the least, you follow all of it. <laughs> And so there could be some confusion there, but look what Christ ends with. He says in verse 20, "...except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees." Essentially, you can't be saved. You can't go to heaven. So Christ in verse 20 is clarifying, look, it's not following the law that gets you saved. It's not following the law that gets you into heaven, because that's what the Pharisees think. And the Pharisees believe that their outward adherence to the law is their righteousness, and is enough to get them to heaven. And God says, that's not true. So when we look at both of these parts of the text balance, what I believe Christ is saying is this. Following God's moral code, following the Word of God is important to God. We need to follow the Word of God. Christ later says, if you love me, keep my commandments. But even if you could do it well, it's still not enough to get you to heaven. So you don't do it to be saved or to stay saved. You do it because you want to honor and love your Savior who saved you because of what he did, not what you did. Next text, talking about anger. Now, I think there's a lot of confusion attached to anger. Verse 21, "'You have heard that it was said by them of old time, "'Thou shalt not kill.'" And whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. Is that what you read? Because I think that's what a lot of people think they read, what I just said. But I left out a very important part of that verse, did I not? It actually says, angry with his brother without cause. Which means, sometimes... There's a cause for anger. Christ was angry when he overthrew the money changers' tables and whipped them with a scourge. God was angry when he judged the nation of Israel countless times in the Old Testament. God will be angry again during the seven years of tribulation as the wrath of God is poured onto mankind in a series of of extremely severe judgments. Anger, are you ready for this? Is not the sin. Anger is just an emotion, like happiness and love. Not love the choice, the will, love the feeling. (laughs) Love the, the emotional euphoria that you experience when you're around people you care about. As opposed to the choice, the, 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 the choice of will to love someone, especially the unloving or the unloved. But the emotional euphoria of love comes and goes. This idea of we're not in love anymore, we fell out of love. No, you're just in an emotional lull. Maybe a permanent emotional lull because of the damage you've done to each other in your relationship. yes. But you don't fall out of 1 Corinthians 13 love. You walk out of that. Because 1 Corinthians 13 love is a choice, is an act of the will. But anger is an emotion. And there is an emotion attached to love. Happiness is an emotion. By the way, I would say discouragement is an emotion. And I would say depression is an extreme level of discouragement. Also, an emotion. And those that would claim that anger is a sin would probably also claim depression is a sin. Might even go far as to say discouragement is a sin. And what they fail to recognize is this. We're all emotional human beings. I don't know what these people are thinking. Uh, did, did they lose their emotions somewhere along the way? Did they convince themselves that they've achieved a higher level of elevated spiritual condition where they're above their emotions and They no longer experience emotions in any way. They're liars. (laughs) They have emotions too. And so how can emotions be sin when it's part of your condition? You could say, well, Pastor Russ, so is the flesh. And and the flesh is sinful. I get that. I understand that. But you know what the difference is? Christ was sinless and still had emotions. (laughs) He didn't have the flesh condition of sin, but he had the emotional side of the human condition and he was sinless. So don't tell me that your emotions are sin. I'll tell you this, your emotions can lead to sin. That euphoric love feeling that you have, hopefully for the one you're married to, can be a sin when it's directed towards someone you're not married to. Whether you've never been married before or married in marriage or outside of marriage, divorced and not remarried. That euphoric emotion of love turns to lust, and we'll look at that later, when directed towards the wrong person. Anger, there are reasons for anger. Justifiable emotional anger. But when directed at the wrong person for the wrong reason, and I would also say, by the way, when directed in the wrong way, there, you know, Christ was pretty extreme in his anger. God's pretty extreme in his anger. So I'm not going to say that showing your anger in any way is sin. I won't say that. I will say, in my experience, it's often unhelpful. Christ showed his anger. Christ is God. And Christ was making very clear the zeal that he had for the house of God. And he allowed his anger to show that zeal. But how many times, and let's be honest... How many times in our lives are we confronted with something that causes us anger on the level that Christ confronted with the house of God? Because if you say, oh, man, my kids make me so angry, okay, are you going to elevate it to the level of Christ with the house of God and the, you know, the temple worshipers desecrating the temple? Is that, is that what level we're talking about of wrong done to you? Well, you know, someone really hurt me. Someone caused me pain. Okay, are you still going to elevate it to the level of Christ and dealing with the desecration of the temple? Because consider this, when Christ was caused pain, physical and emotional, was he angry then? No. We're told that at the end of his time on this earth, he was reviled, he was rebuked, he was attacked, and he responded not in likeness. Could have called down the angels, chose not to. Could have broken the bonds, chose not to. Could have uh, looked at all of them and they would have fallen over dead and chose not to. (laughs) Could have thought it and they chose not to. All right, so Christ chose not to be angry when he was personally attacked on many occasions, not just the end of his life. We do find his anger coming out with the house of God and his zeal for it. So I would caution you, Although anger itself is not sin, how you handle it, what you do with it, who you attack with it, that could be the sin. And do not point to Christ and the temple every time you attack someone with anger and say, well, Christ did. <laughs> different situation, different context. All I'm telling you is this. There are times where your anger could come out and you've done nothing wrong. Christ proved that to us. But I would be very cautious on when that happened and how often it happened because I don't believe we are justified as often as we like to think we are in how our anger is directed at others. But in this verse specifically, especially when you're angry without cause, you just had a bad day and you're taking it out on someone, there's no justification of that. And when does that happen most often? Parents Coming home to their families. You know what I noticed in my own life? The more stressed we are, the quicker we are to anger. And unfortunately, it is usually the ones who deserve it the least. Our spouse, who did us no wrong, but because we're stressed and they didn't do what we wanted immediately in the way we asked, our anger comes out at them. Our children, who can't even fight back, they don't have the authority to fight back, they don't have the age, the experience, the wherewithal, they have no ability to respond to your anger, you're going to throw it at them like, what are you thinking? Not only don't they not deserve it, they can't even defend themselves against you. Because the moment they do, now you're really mad at them. Because now, like, you're justified in getting angry at them. My recommendation to you is deal with your stress before you go home. Don't take it home, if at all possible. And if you do take it home, then deal with it at home. I, on, on many occasions, this is not a rarity. This happens often. My wife and I, I get home. My wife... Um, has stressful days of her own for other, other reasons. Um, we, we live different lives right now, but we both have stress. I'll get home. I bring the, when I get home, I'm bringing all the kids with me a lot of times. So open up the door. These kids all come running in. My wife and I will sit on the couch and we'll say, okay, girls, go upstairs. We have a, a nice finished basement with games and Legos and stuff. Or we say, go downstairs. And we say, uh, we'll call you for dinner. We'll call you when we're ready to have you come up. We are doing that. They may not know this. I'm going to give you a secret. We're doing that for their safety. Like literally, we're doing that to protect them from us because I had a bad day. My wife had a bad day. You know, my wife's a strong woman. I direct my wife, at my wife. I will regret that. So I don't usually do that. And my wife, you know, same thing. So we can handle each other. But for our kids' sakes, getting them out of the way so we can release the stress And then when they come back for dinner, we're all smiles, everyone's good, we're happy, we can finish the night strong. But you know, I've known parents who think, uh, heaven forbid, that I should ever come home and not spend every minute with my kids. Like, I haven't seen them all day. The worst thing I could do now is to not see them when I get home. Like, it is my responsibility and obligation that from 5 o'clock to 8.30, I am with my kids in every second around the house even if it drives me insane. Well, I'll tell you what, you're asking for heartache then, and your kids are going to suffer. There is no biblical mandate that your kids must be attached to your hip every moment you are at home. I will tell you this. I strongly believe that children will benefit more from 30 to 45 minutes of quality, happy, peaceful time with their parents who are stress-free because they weren't attached to your hip for four hours after a stressful day, they will benefit more from that than three and a half hours attached to your hip and you just annoyed at them the entire time because you cannot recover from your day. Now that is experience and that is personal uh, philosophy. I cannot show you in scripture where that is. I can tell you in my own life with five kids That has worked miracles in our family. Our kids do not need to be in the same room with us every minute, and they know that. And it's for their sakes, not ours, when we send them out. (laughs) Okay, so this idea of anger. Anger is an emotion. And the, the emotion itself is not sin. But what you do with it, who you direct it at, for the reason you direct it, that is the sin. And God, when he says you're in danger of the judgment, meaning... God's not going to hold you guiltless. God will punish you, judge you for wronging others who are innocent, at least innocent, of your anger and you directing it at them. He goes on to say in verse 22, uh, not only, you know, the, the, I think, actions of anger, but, um, you know, verse 22, who's his is brother is, is angry with his brother, but going on to say, "'So say to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council.'" Uh, Thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. And so this idea that anger is not always an action, it can often be a verbal attack. God says they're all in danger of punishment. Now, don't be concerned, verse 22, danger of hellfire. Uh, God is not saying if you're saved and curse someone, you're going to hell. He's just trying to show you how severe this is. Hellfire is an extreme level of punishment, (laughs) And God is saying, uh, I take it pretty seriously. So watch what you say and watch what you do when it comes to anger. And then it goes on in, in the following verses to talk about reconciliation. Verses 23 and on. If you are going to the altar to worship and you remember verse 23, uh, someone has ought against thee. God says, leave thy gift to the altar. Basically, stop worshiping. And go and do what? Go and be reconciled to thy brother. Then... Come and offer thy gift. Return to worship. How many Christians worship every Sunday morning knowing they've offended someone and not caring? How many Christians come to worship knowing someone is angry at them and not caring? God says, I care. In fact, I care so much, I'd rather you not, can you believe this, not go to church Sunday. If you had a choice, someone who's a neighbor, a friend, a family, and there's an argument Saturday night, and you had to choose between Sunday morning worship service or go visit them and reconcile the wrong, which one do you think your pastor would choose? Worship service, right? That's what you think. Which one would God choose? Reconciliation. See you next Sunday. Go take care of the problem. Now, it doesn't mean don't ever worship. He says, come back. <laughs> so if you can do both, do both. But if you can only do one, reconcile over worship. Why? Why? Because can you truly worship when you have that rift between you and a loved one? And it says here, they have ought against thee. It doesn't even really clarify that it's justified. Maybe they're upset with you and you didn't do anything wrong. Doesn't matter. Deal with it. Reconcile. You say, Pastor Russ, I tried, and they won't. All right. God's word in other texts gives us Uh, what to do. And it says, bring someone else with you. Bring a spiritual leader with you and try to do it again. But you should at least make the attempt, the initial attempt before worshiping God. If that doesn't work, get back to worship and then put it on your calendar to make the extra attempts with other people to try to bring that reconciliation. Verse 26, verily I say unto you, uh, the Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. All right, what are we talking about here? Well, verse 25, agree with thine adversary quickly while thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge. All right, adversary, enemy. And God's saying now, your enemy may hate you for reasons that he has, she has, you deserve, don't deserve. Do your best to reconcile anyways, because otherwise, if you don't, what is your enemy going to be looking to do? Destroy you. And when that opportunity arises to destroy you, they're going to take it. And then verse 26, they're going to put you in a position where it is going to cause you to lose everything. What is God basically saying? Don't make enemies. And whenever possible, do your best to reconcile with enemies, whether you made them or not. Going back to the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. (laughs) How many Christians are like, you know what, if they want to be my enemy, then that's just their problem, not mine. I'm just going to move on then. Well, that's not the Sermon on the Mount. If you have an enemy, try to turn them to a friend. It does not mean change your morals to gain friends. It does not mean uh, twist truth to gain friends. But make an effort to eliminate all enemies. And it boggles my mind how many Christians, including spiritual leaders, pastors themselves, it seems are looking for a fight. They want enemies. It's almost like they don't think they are followers of God unless they got a line of enemies behind them. Like the more enemies they've got, in some way, the more righteous they are, right? If I got 50 enemies, man, that means I'm really godly because of all the people that hate me. Not according to Christ's message here. Well, Christ had enemies. Yeah, but Christ wasn't looking to make them. (laughs) And on, on, on multiple occasions, Christ even spoke with those enemies and tried to correct them. He wasn't looking to create more of them. Reconciliation is a trait of godliness, This idea of just accepting the fact that you have enemies and accepting the fact that people hate you and not doing anything about it, that's not godliness. And then we get into another emotion we talked about, love, this euphoric emotional state of love. When directed at someone other than your spouse, would be lust in the biblical sense of immorality. (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, the American word lust could be directed towards your spouse and still be okay, but the Bible's use of lust would be intended towards uh, people you're not married to and should not be lusting after. And so in verse twenty-seven, in old time thou shalt not commit adultery. But they said to you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Don't you think it's interesting? It's women can't lust. I mean, we all, we're in this room, we, we know women can lust, right? But isn't it interesting that when Christ was choosing, instead of saying they or them, he was choosing a specific gender, and he chose to have the men represent, the, to embody this idea of lust. And I don't think anyone in this room is surprised that he would do that. Because, of course, women can lust, but also, of course, men seem to have a lot bigger problem with that than women. And so God is saying that in the past, maybe you misunderstood, maybe you misheard that when it said, thou shalt come, not commit adultery, maybe you thought, as long as you didn't have the act of, of sex, that everything else was okay. <laughs> you know, emotional adultery, some kind of connection with someone on a level that's not healthy, but you didn't sleep with them. You know, no clothes came off, so God stills like, thumbs up, you're still good. Don't worry about it. Just keep your clothes on. Christ is saying, let me clarify this for you. Any kind of... Unhealthy, romantic, lustful attachment to anyone that is not your spouse is sin. It's a problem. A lot of men committing a lot of adultery, obviously, with pornography. Obviously, that is a, a very massively growing problem. As a youth pastor, it was, it was becoming scary how fast it was growing among teenagers. I'm no longer a youth pastor. I'm a principal of a school, so I don't deal with teens as often directly with that kind of stuff. Uh, their, their habits, their bad habits as I used to, but still enough to see it's still growing. And you know what's even scarier? It's not just growing in numbers, it's growing in age, meaning younger kids are getting sucked into it now more than ever, uh, than ever before. I mean, we shouldn't be shocked about that. What do younger kids now have that they never had before? Unlimited access to the internet, said it many times and I'll keep saying until the day I die I don't know what you guys are thinking I'm not saying you guys in this room, I'm saying you guys Christians in general, I don't know what they're thinking why would you give an 8 year old unlimited access to the world's sin, like you really think there's not going to be a problem there I've talked to so many parents, I've lost count, that regret giving their child unlimited access to social media and the influence of it and internet. Well, I trust my kids. Okay, well, you obviously don't know the human condition, but let's just put that aside. Do you trust everyone else's kids who have access to your kid now that they have a phone? No. Then what are you doing? Do you trust every single person on social media? No. Then what are you doing? Do you trust all of the website makers out in the world? No. Then what are you doing? Well, I trust my kid. We've already gone over this. <laughs> The internet is not just your kid, okay? he's not walking into a store where he's the only one there. She's not walking into an online presence where she's the only intis. The internet is billions of people who now have access to your child through like FaceTime. And we're shocked that kids are getting in trouble, and we're shocked that kids are becoming addicted to pornography. Why are we shocked? Are we that stupid? Look, I'm not trying to belittle those online. If your kid has a phone, that is your decision. I'm just telling you, I really believe it's a poor one. I'm not telling you you are sinning for giving your child a phone. I would say, uh, going to be honest with you, I would say that you are deceived and you are ignorant. You are naive. Let's put it that way. Maybe that's the nicest way to say it. You're naive. Giving your child a phone is naive. Now, at some point, obviously, kids become teens, become adults, and at some point, responsibility is given when that line is drawn, where that line is crossed. I'm not going to tell you I know exactly when. I'm pretty confident it's not eight years old. I'm almost assured it's not 13 years old. I work with 13 years old. I can tell you they're not ready for that level of responsibility. You know, maybe older teens, young adults, obviously, I get it. You have to decide when your child is prepared, not just to be trusted, But when your child is prepared to defend themselves against billions of other people in the world who want their destruction, when your child is prepared for that, give them a phone. Because that is what they'll be confronted. You are giving them the world who wants to destroy them. Are they mature enough and old enough to defend themselves against the world's desire to destroy them? Eight-year-olds are not. Thirteen-year-olds are not. I'm not even convinced fifteen-year-olds are. You ask my daughters... You getting a the phone, they'll say no. When are you getting one? They'll say when we get out of the house in college because that's when they're getting one. And it probably won't even be me getting it. they ought have to buy their own. I'm not going to buy them a phone. I am not giving my kids a phone. They want to call someone, they can use my phone. Someone wants to call them, they can call me, and I'll give them the phone. Call me old school, I don't care what you say, but I'm not giving access. I'm not giving the world access to my children. And I'm not giving my children access to the world. Because naive people are overly trusting. And so men and women in our culture are continually sucked into lust. And unfortunately, it doesn't just stay up here. They start acting on it. And that's what we're seeing, a culture acting on lust, giving in to all kinds of sin and calling it love. You see the the title up there? Can you see the, the two intertwined? That's the world. That's how they view it. Love and lust, they just go together. You can't separate them. You know, when you, when you just feel it, you just got to do it, you know? And if, you, you know, if it feels good, how can it be wrong, they say, right? Love is love, they say. I don't think we're defining the same word. And when we talk about the word, I, I really don't think we actually are talking about the same word. <laughs> love lust, they say. No, it's lust, and it's wrong. Divorce. I preached a series of messages on divorce, and I don't want to go overly in-depth today, but let's go ahead and read this text, portions of it at least. Verse 31. It hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Now, I believe that there are other passages that give us more information than just this one about divorce. And you say, well, Pastor Russ, Christ is very clear here. The only reason for divorce is adultery. And, and if you divorce outside of adultery, you are essentially living in adultery. And this verse doesn't have anything to say about remarriage. So even if it was justifiable by adultery, you cannot remarry. Well, that would only be true if you didn't believe the rest of Scripture was inspired. If you believe all of Scripture is inspired, then all of Scripture holds equal weight to this particular inspired text. But Pastor Russ, this is Christ's words. The others are the Apostle Paul's words. Well, then maybe you and I don't see Scripture the same way. The Apostle Paul's words are God's words given to the Apostle Paul, dare I say, through the Apostle Paul, to us. So when I read the Apostle Paul's letters inspired by God, and when I read uh, the, the, the text of Matthew inspired by God, whether Christ spoke it or not, they're equal weight. And there are other passages that speak on divorce and other passages that give us more information, such as when someone wants to walk away from the marriage, specifically, says an unbeliever. It's hard to know if someone really says or not, but specifically when an unbeliever says, I'm done. I'm done with God. I'm done with you. I'm done with this family. I'm done with Christianity. I'm God says, let them go. Divorce them. Do you not have to follow them into their sin? Let them leave. That doesn't mean they're actually walking out of the house, by the way. Someone can check out and still live at home. You know, check out and still eat your food. So leaving doesn't mean, are you leaving yet? Because I can't divorce you until you actually walk out of the house. Like, look, if they've checked out and they're done, follow through. Get the divorce. God's Word states that. There's other passages I'm not going to get into. But I just want to point out that those who look at divorce from only one passage in Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels, Epistles, will probably all get different views of divorce if they only look at one. But when you look at all of the texts together and you see God's view on divorce as a whole, there is still structure to it, okay? It's not just like a free-for-all, do whatever you want, marry, divorce, marry, divorce, marry, divorce. God still has boundaries, but they're not nearly as tight as many Christians imply, I think because of their lack of understanding regarding the entire Word of God. They've just been taught one passage and based their theology off of that one passage, this being a prime example of it. Honesty. Verse 33. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oath. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth. For it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou cast not make one hair white or black. Verse 20, 37, but let your communication be yea, yea, nay, uh, ye, ye, nay, nay. For whosoever whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. God is not saying you are evil if you swear on something else. He's saying it basically uh, comes out of this idea that I don't have to follow through if I don't hold up my arm and and swear. That, oh, you know what? Oh, I promise, but did I hold my hand on the Bible? Mm, No, so I don't have to follow through with that promise. That's what's going on here. That in this culture, the Jews were saying an oath was not binding if it was not on your mother or on the city of Jerusalem or on on the temple or, or whatever that particular leader felt was the strongest oath. And God is breaking down... This discrepancy, this, this um, misperception of theology that you are, your, your honesty is only suffering when you break an oath on something important. Where God is saying what's important is your honesty, is your character. And, and be a person of character where people know when you say yes, you mean yes, when you say no, you mean no. And they don't have to wonder where you hold, you know, was your. Your fingers crossed behind your back and, you know, were you cross-eyed? Does that mean I can't trust you? Be trustworthy. Be honest. Retaliation. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn him to the other also. And if any man will sue thee at law, take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. It also goes on to say that uh, verse 41, if you're, if you're um, compelled to go a mile and carry the, the pack of a Roman soldier, go two miles. And so God is saying, basically, do not retaliate off of the anger of others, do not retaliate off of the uh, injustice of others. Choose the higher path. Turn the other cheek. Now, I believe that this is on a personal level. I do not believe this is a commandment for a nation. A nation who churns the other cheek will no longer be a nation in 5, 10, 20 years. This is not a command to a government system. God is not telling all government leaders to let themselves be walked over by dictators And anarchists. This is to the individual Christian. When you have been wronged on a personal level, forgive and don't retaliate. I don't even believe this is a command for companies or even for necessarily churches. There are, you know, if a church has been wronged, if someone has wronged people in the church, the church is told to confront that wrong. Not to turn the other cheek and let the person run rampant in the church, but the leadership is told to confront the wrong and to address the issue. But we're talking on a personal level. You do not need to be the judge and executioner for every wrong done to you. Love in action. We're almost done. Verse number 43. Ye have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of of your Father which is in heaven. We, I told you there's only a few instances where God attaches this idea of people know you're his child. They know you're a disciple. Uh, he talks about it being later to his disciples. He says they'll know you by your love. He says, so here, they'll know you're a child of God when you love in a godly way. And then we said in Matthew chapter 5 earlier with the uh, Beatitudes, verse 9, they'll know you're my child if you are a peacemaker. Love is pretty important to God. It should be pretty important to us. Love in action, not just stated, I love you, but shown that I love you. Because if you can't show it, you probably don't have it. Stop trying to convince people through your words and show them through your actions. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, for the many truths we found in it tonight. I pray that as we continue this lesson next Wednesday, we'll continue our growth and our understanding of what you want of us and who you want us to be. I pray that we would exemplify Christ, be the salt, be the light, and show the world what godly biblical love and truth is. In Jesus' name.